core to understanding the economy is recognizing that it is about human actions and interactions. In fact, the economy is people acting and interacting. It is little or nothing else. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, we will be discussing how to think about the economy, a primer by Dr. Pear Beland. Dr. Beland, where is the best place for people to purchase the book? Well, I mean, it depends on how much you want to pay. Uh, <clears throat> the best place would be the Mises Institute. Uh, and uh, it's Mises.org slash primer. So it's pretty easy to, to remember. If you, if you prefer a, I mean, you just can see there, um, both the PDF and the EPUB versions are free to download. Uh, the paperback version is five bucks. If you prefer a Kindle version, there is one on Amazon uh, for two ninety nine, I think. Uh, the paperback is also on Amazon, but it's eight bucks then. Terrific. Links to those will be in the description below. How would you define economics? Well, I mean, you read a pretty good definition, I think. Um, I mean, it is a study of human action and, and, and uh, the outcomes of human action. So it, it's in a sense, it is the, the study of, of the trade-off at the very core uh, and the, the study of how our actions uh, bring about all kinds of interesting phenomena around us. Every time I hear someone on CNBC talking about economics, it's very often about the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ. How is it that a uh, discussion about human actions, human beings pursuing their ends, economizing, has to do with just uh, the unemployment rates and the Dow Jones? Well, that beats me. I mean, uh, it's, it's not very clear at all. Uh, and, and it's sort of this, this new uh, brand of economics uh, which very often is macroeconomics and not microeconomics to begin with. And macroeconomics comes out of Keynes's uh, general theory from 1936. And I mean, it was really written as a critique of economics and economic re uh, reasoning. So uh, it's, it's sort of, in a sense, an, an economic anti-economics, if you will. Uh, and studying these aggregates, they don't really mean much at all in themselves. I mean, they're, they're interesting phenomena to study because we can we can figure out where they come from and 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 uh, how they uh, affect people's view of society and therefore perhaps their actions. But they don't exist in themselves. I mean, the unemployment rate doesn't mean anything to to any person acting, uh, and and any such aggregate it doesn't really make much of a difference. Uh, because they don't act themselves. They are really what comes out of actions. Uh, but what you mentioned about Wall Street and the stock market, I mean, that's, that's very common. It's, it's actually so common that when, when I tell people that I'm an economist, they go, oh, great, uh, I, I want to invest in stocks. Which, which are the, the best stocks to invest in? I mean, I don't have a clue. And, and I can't really tell them either. And I'm, I guess I'm not supposed to give them investment advices either. So, so that's, it's, it's really... That's sort of finance and financial markets. For some reason, people have started to believe that markets themselves are financial markets and nothing else. Uh, so we talk about the market and it's Wall Street, whereas the market is really just uh, uh, it's really just society. Uh, and it's really just our interactions as people and, and, and trying to figure out how to produce as much value as possible with the little resources we have available. 
on page 11, you talk about the importance of economic literacy, and your goal in this book is helping to increase the amount of economic literacy in the world. What questions would you ask someone to determine whether or not they are economically literate? Well, I mean, that's a very good, uh, very good question, actually. I mean, something that has to do with opportunity cost, perhaps, uh, would strike at the very core. I mean, if they, if they understand what profit is uh, in itself, uh, if they understand what uh, voluntary exchange means, that it is actually for mutual gain, uh, so both parties are actually expecting to be better off. It's not the case that you're, you're, you're trading uh, things that are, are at, at equal value, whatever that means. Um, and it's not the case that if someone makes profit, another person necessarily loses, because that's also not the case. Uh, and th I mean, there are plenty of things that you can ask. And very often, uh, the, the way that economic illiteracy uh, is sort of used or maybe even leveraged is that people believe that they can get something for nothing. So, so they can either raise uh, the standard of living for people in general <clears throat> without actually working more or producing more, but just through uh, the magic of a, a legislative pen, uh, suddenly everybody's rich and not understanding that it's actually about real resources. It's not about just dollar amounts. If everybody gets more dollars, we're not going to get more products. We're not going to be happier anyway. We're just going to see rising prices. So, so there, there are plenty of, of ways that economic illiteracy is, is, can be seen among people. I mean, those would be the most common ones. What is psychic profit? Psychic profit is simply that you're better off after an action than you were before the action. So it's really just the, the well-being that you gain from an action. I think this is so important because a lot of times people will be like, well, I want to know who's funding this person or that person. And then that's how we'll determine whether or not the policy is justified by the person promoting it. And then we, we just find who the original person was with the idea. Then we can determine when you could find that someone's not making any money, but their social status is drastically increasing. Fauci being one of the best examples of this. I know he also has a lot of money, but uh, when it comes to uh, an actual explanation for why you know politicians would do thus and so and what, why they're so terribly afraid of uh, public opinion turning against them and, uh, and uh, the things related to that, anything more on uh, psychic profit? Any uh, big examples that uh, you'd like to point out to people? No, but I can elaborate on, on your example with Anthony Fauci. I mean, he, he's been on, on television sort of complaining about how people distrust him and how people use his name as sort of something negative. And, 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 and I mean, we can argue that he, he earned it. But the thing is that when he is on television saying these things and sort of pretending to be hurt as a person, he seems to, to me to, as a lay psychologist, but he seems to be a narcissist. So he seems to really enjoy the limelight and really enjoy being on television, which means that he is sort of pretending to be really hurt uh, and his feelings are really hurt by this because he wants to do good and he probably thinks that he's doing good too. Uh, but he really loves being there saying it. So he probably gets psychic profit out of pretending to be hurt. So, I mean, this, this is not intended as a, as a psychological analysis of Anthony Fauci necessarily, but psychic profit is really how you personally 
value something. So it's, it's not what you express. It's not how other people might interpret your situation. It's how you feel about it and, and the well-being that you experience. And the reason I also think that's important is because people will sometimes criticize capitalism as being profit-seeking. When under any system, you have people constantly looking to profit, whether it's psychic profit, monetary profit, increase the amount of resources and influence they have in society. So uh, thank you for uh, explaining that. Yeah, every action we take is intended to make us better off. Otherwise, we wouldn't act. Right. The, the whole reason that we act is because we're not completely content with where we are and the situation we're in. And therefore we act. We act only only because we think we can make it better. And that's the psychic profit that we're aiming for. Finally, uh, before we get into uh, two clips I'd like us to watch, give me an example of an economic law and the implications of this economic law. Sure, there are plenty. Um, I mean, all of economic theory is really just laws. Uh, and, and nothing else. Uh, an example I usually use with my students is diminishing marginal utility. Uh, and that simply says that, well, the more you have of something, the less you value each unit you have. Uh, and that sounds a little weird when you, when you just hear it just like that. But if you think about it, if you have only one unit, say you're in the, in the desert and you have no water, if you get one unit, it's worth a lot. If you get a second bottle or second glass of water, well, then, then it's not worth as much anymore. If you get a third one, if you have a thousand, then, I mean, you, it doesn't really matter if you lose one or two because you have so many and you've already used them towards whatever valuable ends that you have to use water for. So uh, the more you have of something, you, you always value um, each unit at the lowest value you can get with those units you have, if that makes sense. Which, and then that means, of course, that if you have a lot of water, you're less willing to pay something for, to get more water. And you can accept a rather low payment for selling the, uh, a unit of the water that you have, if it's a bottle or, or, or a glass. But if you only have a little bit and your, your survival depends on it, then, then you would probably pay a lot to get a little more. And you would probably not accept any payment uh, to sell that bottle of water that you have because it would be mean your death. Right. So so we value things at the margin, as, as people say. Right. Uh, and diminishing marginal utility means just that. And that's the, sort of the basis for both demand curves and, and, and supply curves and where prices come from as well. And that's why prices fall uh, when there are more units of something. So the thing that sticks out to me in that is um, if I have, you know, someone with a million dollars and someone with a thousand, you might say, well, the millionaire isn't going to value that last hundred thousand as much as someone else would. So therefore it should be given to him, but it's uh, well taken by force and then redistributed uh, according to the desires of politicians. But it's just the fact that it's diminishing marginal utility means that the millionaire is more likely to invest that extra money as opposed to spend it on immediate consumer goods. And therefore, we have also a utilitarian justification for uh, a uh, justification in uh, economic inequality. When it comes to diminishing marginal utility, do you think that uh, makes the case for or against uh, the free market? Well, it makes the case for, of course, uh, for several different reasons. And I mean, in the example that you mentioned there, the redistribution, you have to assume that they value money in the same way and that they have basically the same utility curves. 
but you can't really uh, compare valuations between people because value is subjective. So you can't say that this $100,000 from the rich guy is worth less than the $100,000 would be worth, worth for the poor guy. You can't really com make those comparisons at all. So, so you have to use a lot of sort of uh, not very reliable assumptions in order to, to make that case. Namely that, oh, I know the utility curve and I know exactly how they value the money and I know the value of, in, in terms of money, you don't value money itself, right? You value money for what it can purchase and what it can do. So maybe this, this millionaire uh, values this 100,000 because he's going to use it for charity and, and save, say, a thousand puppies from death or maybe uh, solve poverty or, or whatever. And that's of really high value for this person and probably for the people who would be uh, saved as well, whereas the poor person would feed himself or pay off his student debt or what have you, right? So, so it's, it's really, really, it's, it's, it's hard to make those, the, the case that you can compare across people uh, and recognizing that value is subjective. I mean, you, you can't, you have to use a lot of assumptions and those assumptions are, are uh, ill-founded. Yeah, certainly. And the, the investment example is so vitally important because if we had asked, you know, decades ago, would uh, you like uh, everyone to have f uh, 50 or $10 or some guy, Bezos, invest a ton of money in this startup idea? That sounds wacky. Well, uh, they didn't redistribute the idea. Uh, Amazon was, uh, Jeff Bezos has his famous cover. He was on the cover of a magazine. Bezos' big bet that's guaranteed to fail, something like that. And as a result, he has made books, some of the most important uh, intellectual material in the world, uh, available at such a cheap rate for so many people. Only thing I have against him is the Washington Post and how he's basically a mouthpiece for the regime so uh, many times. But that just goes to show you how uh, good people do bad things uh, when it comes to uh, politics. Uh, yeah, and then we'll, one more thing on uh, it, it, what else uh, should we appreciate about investment? Not seeing it as something the rich do just for them. Uh, how does the everyday person benefit from uh, investment or capital investment? Well, I mean, in several ways. Uh, first of all, you, if you have an entrepreneur investing in production, they don't know that it's going to make a profit. They don't know that what they're producing is actually valuable. They're going to see that later on at some point when they actually expose their, their goods offering to consumers. At that point, they will learn whether the consumers like it or not. But the very investment creates jobs, right? So by starting a business, before they know that there's any value whatsoever in, in the business, they will still hire people and they will pay these salaries and they will pay other companies, their suppliers, right, for, for whatever it is that they're buying from them. So they're using, in a sense, their own cash or, or their borrowed cash, uh, to create these jobs, whether or not they're successful. So we need these, these in investments in order for us to have uh, a source of income so that we can then uh, consume whatever it is that we want to consume. I searched social media for some of the best arguments in favor of statism or democratic socialism. I found two of them by Richard Wolff. They're about 90 seconds each. I uh, want you uh, to watch and please uh, comment on these. I would say. Number one, a rational planning mechanism for what to do about a pretty well-known problem. 
capitalism's been around for three, four hundred years if you dated in the 17th, 18th century in England, and then it spreads. Wherever it has spread, it shows a pretty similar history. Whatever the industry is that gets them off the ground, whether it's cotton textiles, or it's iron and steel, or it's railroads, those things peter out. After 10 years, 20, 40, 60 sometimes, uh, capitalism is a very dynamic system, it'll move on. It'll move on to a different industry, it'll move on to a different technology, it'll move on to a different region of the world. Nobody is or should be surprised by this. You ought to be able, therefore, to conceptually sit down and say, okay, what are we going to do so that when the shift comes to a new technology or a new region, we don't leave disaster in its wake? We don't see all the capital vanish, move to another place. Uh, good news for the place it moves to, but a disaster for the place it left behind. All of those things could have been, should have been worked out through a national conversation and a national planning program. How do you respond? <laughs> well, I mean, Richard Wolff is, uh, is insane. Uh, so... The problem here is that he, he thinks that these things can be planned, that these things can be foreseen, that these things can be expected. And just be, because you have a boom in one industry and then you have a boom in another industry doesn't mean that it actually moves from one to the next when it's mature and ready. And it's not anything that can be planned either. What we're having in, in, in this system that he referred to as capitalism, I don't really like that term necessarily, uh, <clears throat> is is that entrepreneurs are trying all kinds of different things and they're trying all these investments and most of them are failing all of the time. And how are they failing? Because they do not figure out what serves consumers best. So they take this capital and they, to put it very quickly, the way that an entrepreneur invests, if, if he's a smart entrepreneur, is to figure out that, okay, so this, this what I, I wanna produce, I think is valuable to consumers at this high level. Uh, which means I can get a, a pretty good price for what I'm selling and I can sell this many of, of this good. That is the budget that he or she has for buying inputs, which means if you figure out and you believe strongly that you have something that is very, very valuable, you can outbid in, in, in Wolf's example, whoever is, is working in a booming cotton industry. You can outbid them for capital and you probably should outbid them too because you can make profit elsewhere. Now, if you have all these entrepreneurs doing this and they're going to fail because it's really, really hard to, to figure out where the value actually will be and what consumers will actually like. So you need all these, this plethora of entrepreneurs trying all these different things uh, so that they can thereby figure out by winning or losing, mostly losing, being weeded out, uh, figure out where consumers will benefit the most. And it's really about the, the uh, opportunity cost and, and the trade-off between industries and different production uh, uh, processes. And I, I think the, the only thing that Richard Wolff showed in his sort of historical overview was that he has no clue how the market works. That's, that's the only thing that I got from it, really. So when he says rational planning mechanism or having a national conversation, he's just lying about what he actually advocates because we're fine with people planning and cooperating and investing short term, long term, 
people having national conversations, whatever that means, like a, a 300 million person Zoom meeting. What do you really mean, uh, national conversation? Because um, even the national conversation is Bernie Sanders is going to have more influence than I ever will. So will AOC. So will Ilhan Omar. Isn't that unequal? Isn't that the very inequality he decries about the voluntary sector that applies tenfold into the violent sector? What What is he missing when he says what we need to do is plan? What is he really trying to say? Well, I mean, what he's trying to say is that we need a central plan for, for all of society, which, which, of course, misses all the problems that both Mises and Hayek have, have already shown us. And But then he's, he's sort of... Uh, putting it in a context where it seems like he wants to save those who are are hurt by capitalism, moving investments from one industry to the next. So basically what he's saying is that whoever was working on producing really kick-ass uh, carriages uh, that were pulled by horses, we should step in and make sure that they can keep their highly paid jobs after, even after Henry Ford released uh, the Model T. Right? So we would not have this shift towards automobiles that obviously served consumers a whole lot better. Instead, we would have a lot of uh, horse carriage manufacturers and, and carpenters who, who are really, really ex experts in, in doing this. And, and of course, because they, at, before the Model T, produced a lot of value for consumers, they were probably paid pretty highly. But we should keep them uh, on tab and, and keep, keep paying them these high salaries when the shift came, meaning consumers were better served by production elsewhere, in this case, automobiles, and the government should step in and keep paying them these high salaries for basically products that no one is willing to pay for. That's what he's saying. Or uh, I'd love for them to really show us that they care and just start a big GoFundMe called the Richard Wolf Foundation. All the billions of leftists around the world get to chip in. And when someone loses their job, they uh, they help them out when they need health care, when they want to go to a uh, Marxist college, you know, any of the 5,000 that there are. Well, then they get to take from the Richard Wolf Fund. So uh, all these uh, things that he lies about and says, well, you don't believe in helping people. What's wrong with planning? He doesn't mention the coercive apparatus behind it. Uh, so let's just say that suffering of the downtrodden can happen under any system. What is it about capitalism that decreases the likelihood that the suffering will occur? So if I want a lot of job opportunities in case jobs go away, what is it about capitalism that capitalism that makes it uniquely superior to socialism, statism, minarchism, etc.? It's created destruction through entrepreneurship. So it's the creation of higher value for consumers and consumers are sovereign and they're the final arbiter of what is value, of value. So un entrepreneurs are really serving consumers and entrepreneurs are successful in replacing what is already exist in existence if they can produce more value for consumers. So it's, it's this continuous process towards higher value creation. And you don't have this process in, in, in any other system. And uh, he also says that capitalism does a thing like this inanimate object. He never says, as a result of consumers making choices, as a result of employees making choices or people choosing to invest their time or shop here instead of there, he acts like there's just some magical entity that makes all this stuff randomly happen. It's like saying uh, the, the divorce system makes people divorced and it makes people depressed. So we need to stop having the divorce system. 
as if that's completely separate from the individuals engaged in uh, in the actions. Yeah, um, no, no, I think you're right, and I think I think there are two issues here, really. I mean, one one is that he actually believes in in these aggregates, and 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 that it is these forces that shape everything, and it's not actually human action. Uh, and also, of course, if he would understand this, and he he might, I don't know. If he would understand this and instead talk about how consumers choose which producers earn profit, well, then he would lose uh, the debate because then people would realize, well, wait a minute, if consumers choose who makes profits, the consumer is me. And it's completely voluntary. So why wouldn't the consumer who is who's benefited greatly by someone, why wouldn't that consumer be able to and and have the right to? provide profit to this this industrialist right so, so you lose the the debate immediately if you go to the individual level and they act as like no business has ever gone out of business before it's just a greedy capitalist at the top just raking it all in um and then the final thing is okay he mentioned um you mentioned what he really means is central planning Let's say that the response to that is, okay, well, Joe Biden shouldn't do the planning, but each county, each government county, uh, you know, whoever the city council is, that's very local. And then the people will show up to the town square. There can be debates and petitions. Then they go uh, one step to the city. The city goes to the state and then the states go to the region. Then the regions go to uh, Joe Biden. It, does that solve the central planning problem, bringing everything down to like a microscopic local level? Well, no, it doesn't. Central planning still doesn't work. And it's still a, a one size fits all. So, I mean, we, yeah, we can all meet in the town square. How about we meet in the town square and we vote on what clothes to wear and what to have for dinner on the Tuesday? We're going to have a lot of people who are not happy with the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's, I mean, that, that would be, a, if we vote like that, then it's, it's the, the uh, dictatorship of the majority, really. Uh, I mean, that type of, of, of democracy, uh, which is usually why we, you would have a central planning committee instead who would be sort of experts and, and whatnot else. And, and therefore, um, uh, they would make a better decision than everybody else. Because you can't, like, like Hayek, Hayek taught us, you can't really aggregate everybody's uh, wants and everybody's value scales into one big one and then, and then use that to, to direct society. You can't do that. But on the other hand, I mean, Mises' argument, there's no response to it at all. Uh, and the argument is simply that, well, you need private property in the hands of entrepreneurs who can fail or earn a profit by competing with each other, trying to figure out how to serve consumers best. Because no one can see it in the future. We can't figure that out. And even entrepreneurs are, they're, they're good, but they're not that good so most entrepreneurs fail most of the time imagine if you if you put all your eggs in one basket mm -hmm. what are the odds that you're going to fail well it's going to be pretty huge chance that you're going to fail and then everybody's going to hurt uh, in, in the capitalist system it's decentralized so those entrepreneurs will hurt their employees will not because they get a job for as long as the entrepreneur uh, keeps at it Right? And, and therefore have an income and can buy whatever stuff they want. But the individual entrepreneurs, they have everything to lose. So um, the definition that I use for capitalism, I'm, sh I'm sure I have to have gotten it from 
on Sapa is a social system based on the explicit recognition of private property and non-aggressive contractual exchanges between private property owners on one end. And then on the other end, you have communism, the abolition of private property. Is that what you would go with? Or is there something missing there that's important? No, I think I think it captures it. I mean, the I, I focus on on the value creative aspect of entrepreneurs, and I think that dynamic is really important and 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 core to it. But I mean, you can't have it without private property. So, so I mean, it, it's it's indirectly in Hoppe's definition, I would say. And uh, Wolf says capitalism has been around about three hundred years. Would you say that that's accurate? Well, I mean, what he refers to which is sort of a state capitalist kind of system. And that's why you have these waves that he was talking about too, that there's a huge investment in a certain industry and then moves on. That's not really how the market operates. Uh, that's, that's how it has operated in, in, in history these past 300 years because of government investments and because deregulations that, that are in a certain industry, but not in the other ones, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that type of state capitalist system has only been around since, I mean, since the feudal age ended, which would be those three, four hundred years, something. But in in terms of talking about a market, that's that's part of who we are and how we do things. It's just exchange; it's voluntary exchange. Markets have been around since the dawn of mankind. And and that I think is vitally important because if we just yeah. say capitalism is when one or a few people control a lot of property and have a lot of power, well, every king since like ancient Samaria falls under that definition, or King Leopold does, and they're putting that person in the same boat as uh, Sam Walton or Andrew Carnegie or people today who can't get a penny out of our pocket unless we voluntarily give it to them. So even the idea that some people control a large plot of land, that's not even a unique uh, criticism of capitalism. Is there something I'm missing there? Because I've never run that idea by anyone who I respect. No, I think, I think it's... I think it's true. The, the only difference is that what they would claim is a difference is that uh, under capitalism, uh, you would have these massive wealth in private hands and not public hands. Of course, in a monarchy, I don't see the difference because in a monarchy, the whole country would be the king's property anyway. And you would, of course, only have one, but yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, so he's a monopolist and he owns everything. And th those are private hands. Sure, he would call himself the government, but that doesn't make them public hands. Uh, so it, it's really, it, it's it's a distinction that is uh, made up, right? It's There's there's nothing substantial there at all. It's ridiculous. I mean, it, do I really say, well, uh, I have a call with the FBI later because uh, I influence them and, you know, th they respond to the public. And, and then I have a call with the CIA and then Kamala Harris is going to ask me what we should do with Biden, uh, with Russia and Ukraine. No, it's just as bad as being private. It's stolen and then in their hands permanently. So they act as though having a government all of a sudden represents people. Uh, it's always the opposite with them. Second and final, uh, Richard Wolf. Uh, sec segment. The second thing I would argue, which is even more important for me, is that, and, and here my Marxism comes. I mean, you know, this is not me. I, I didn't invent any of this. I'm just applying what I learned from a good teacher. Um, many good teachers, but Marx was one of them. Uh, you, you, you cannot organize an economic system that purports 
to serve what people need if you don't put the people in charge. There is something fundamentally amiss in organizing enterprises in the following specifically capitalist way. A very small group of people sit at the top of virtually every business, large, medium, small. Whether you call them the owner or the owning family or the partnership or the corporation, it is a very small group of people. Board of directors of typical corporations have 15 uh, men and women on them, major shareholders about the same number, uh, but the employees, the vast mass of us, we are in a subordinate position. We do not elect the people who run the enterprise. We have no authority to recall them if they perform in a way we don't want. And so we have a system in which the mass of the apparatus of production, of the goods and services without which we cannot survive, is controlled by a tiny, unaccountable minority of people. What are your thoughts? It's, it's the regular Marxist nonsense, right? He, he noticed what group he did not mention that we talked about quite a bit, the consumer. He did not talk about how corporations and entrepreneurs make money by serving the consumer. He did mention that, oh, the goods and services that we all need to survive, right? But he didn't say that, well, therefore, we buy and sell in the marketplace. And if we don't buy from these corporations, they're screwed. That's mm -hmm. the end of it. Right, so so what they do, even if you have a huge uh, hierarchical corporation with managers at the very top, the only thing they can do to make money and keep that corporation big and powerful, in Marxist terms, is to serve consumers. Now that group is not part of it. Instead, he says, "Oh, employees are subordinate to the manager." That's only true because. Marxists assume that value is objective. So it doesn't really matter what consumers want or what consumers think or what consumers prefer. Screw that. Uh, a, a good is, is valuable because you put a lot of, val of, of labor into producing it. Uh, and, and that's, of course, nonsense. We, we know that we don't appreciate something because someone put a lot of work into it, unless it's like a, some family member or something like that, because then we feel sorry for them. But someone else... If you go to a store and you have like two pieces of chicken and you go like, oh, this piece of chicken, someone put a lot of work and effort into it. So I'm going to pay $100 a pound. And this other chicken, which looks exactly the same, no one put, people were really, really economizing and they put out a lot of chicken for a little effort uh, so they can sell it for just $5 a pound. Would I then say, that, oh yeah, the $100 a pound chicken is is worth so that much more because they wasted resources? No, of course not. This it's just pure nonsense. But notice also how he started the whole discussion. Because he started by saying, when we organize an economic system, who the hell are we? Well, it's Richard Wolff, right? Because he wants to design a system that he thinks is just. But the, the problem here is that, well, the market system, it's designed by all of us. The whole market system, all the production that is going on in the market responds to our needs and our wants. It's the actors in a market system are successful because they manage to uh, provide value to consumers, nothing else.
and they're weeded out mercilessly if they do not satisfy consumers. And that's, so I mean, the, why would you want to design something instead of this system? I, I don't get that because you can only do worse and Richard Wolf would definitely do worse. Yeah, it's like they always imagine that they themselves are going to be at the top of this when even half the people in government, they think are bigoted, xenophobic, racist, hateful, Nazis. Um, uh, so uh, I guess it literally is. It's going to be him calling uh, calling the shots. They're yeah, never it's always like the case. Really... You know, it's yeah. it's even when they talk about class consciousness, we can't really see outside of our class consciousness because mm -hmm. we're completely brainwashed by it pretty much. But the Marxists themselves, they can tell us this because they are not affected by this thing that affects all of us. So therefore, they can tell us about it. Now, who, who made them God? Well, their theory did. But that's, that's a very crappy theory saying that, oh, well, I know, but no one else knows. That's not a, a, a way to, to, to approach society. That's not a way to learn about society. And, and who put them on top other than themselves, of course? Yeah, well, it's like Nina Jankowitz talking about uh, how we need to fight against misinformation. And then she, of course, spread the Hunter Biden's laptop was a Russian plant conspiracy theory that was easily debunkable when you realize the people had the worst reputations ever. Uh, so uh, when it comes to being in a subordinate position, this uh, really uh, sort of uh, lands with a big audience because most of their day is not talking about minimum wage and agriculture subsidies. It's at work. And sometimes they will certainly feel like, you know, I work hard. The boss doesn't appreciate me. So really, uh, I should be involved in politics by increasing the amount of power I have in the workplace. So if I care about people in vulnerable positions who can be uh, subordinate to others, why would I like the capitalist system as opposed to a socialist one? Well, I mean, you you wouldn't. I mean, what they aspire to is power over people and society, so that they can they can uh, mold society in a way that they they want to see, right? Just like Wolf was saying, organize the economy in a certain way, and of course, they they have the the hubris to think that they can do it, and 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 that they can even do better than people themselves, and and this structure of of the market that emerges out of people's actions when people voluntarily act and interact. And they think that they can do better because they just are, so, are, are better moral creatures or something. So if I were a poor uh, person, would I rather be in a capitalist society or a socialist? You might say a socialist society. So I have uh, health care and housing guaranteed by the state. Why shouldn't poor people um, vote in their interest and elect socialists? Well, I, think, I don't think it is in, in their interest. I mean, it, it, it depends on, on where you go with this, but a pure socialist society would not have the means to produce any, any health care uh, and any food or anything like that because such an economy is simply impossible for, for the reasons that Mises taught us over 100 years ago now. Uh, so that's not the case. And the welfare state depends on entrepreneurs creating new value that the government can then extract from them uh, through taxation and then waste them on healthcare and so forth. Because, and I say waste because it is waste because they're not using it in a way that consumers of healthcare would actually want. Instead, they're producing the healthcare that they should, they, that they think should be produced for people, which is different, right? It's again one size fits all, and then uh, they have all kinds of other interests in the organizations, uh, and and then 
the costs just skyrocket and you have no way of measuring how efficiently you're using the money. So you're, you're screwed and that burden is just increasing while the output is decreasing. And that's what we see in, in welfare systems, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I, think, I think the promise of socialism is what's so, so scary that they promise all of these things, but it goes back to what we said before about economic illiteracy, that it promises to give us all so much of everything and we'll all get free healthcare and we'll all have uh, filet mignon every day uh, and, and we'll all have a huge house and the best cars and we'll all have a private jet and whatever. We can all get this stuff. Whereas in, in reality, we can't all have this stuff. And we are in the process of creating greater prosperity. But why would we ever in that process just pull the brakes and say, stop, we don't want more prosperity. We don't want to want to cure more disease. Well, we don't want more comfort or convenience. Stop right here. Let's just redistribute what we got. And then that's it. I mean, imagine if they would have done this before penicillin, before vaccines, before these, we would all be dead, but they would be equal. And that is still assuming that they can maintain that level, which they can't. Exactly. Uh, when it comes to uh, uh, elections, do you think that consumers, let's say we have 50,000 people in America who are very unhappy with something, do you think they would have more power as consumers in the marketplace or as voters in the political sector? This is a trick question. As consumers, of course. I mean, they... That's... It, yes, it sounds tricky, but it's like these people don't even ever address the fact that people can't organize. They go, or they'll say, well, that's unrealistic. Oh, as opposed to organizing in government and voting someone in. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yes, it, it actually is a uh, significant question. So why is it, how is it people have more power in the market as consumers versus voters in the political sector? Because a vote is, is one vote and it's a winner takes all system. Uh, and of course, there's no accountability, even though we say there is. So we're not actually voting for the policies themselves. We're voting for a person to get the power. Whereas in the marketplace, we're voting with our dollars and we can spread the dollars between whatever we prefer. And we're voting by buying actual products and we get those products. So everything is different. It's I, I sort of really dislike to think the the comparison of, of markets with a, a sort of dollar democracy or something like that, because it really is not, because you're getting the things that you want right away when you're buying things, whereas in an election, well, you get a sticker, and, and that's pretty much it. And then, then you'll see whether the guy you preferred over the other guy is going to have power or not, and but then you don't know with log rolling and things like that, whether that guy is actually going to have any impact on anything. And you don't know exactly what kinds of things he is going to vote for anyway. And you definitely don't know the outcome of those things. So, I mean, you're so far removed from any decision-making, but you know that whatever decision comes out of that process is going to be shoved down your throat and you're going to be forced to act uh, in accordance with it. And people, that is police, uh, might steal your stuff if you don't do uh, what they say through this process. Whereas in the marketplace, you choose whether to buy a product or not. If you don't buy it, that's a strong signal to the producer. Whoops, I produced the wrong thing. If you buy it, that's an even stronger signal to the producer that you, you, I produce something good. I can, I can work with this. I can try to satisfy this guy again with an even better product. 
when it comes to what they're uh, trying to get at here, uh, and I, I see this a lot, that's why I uh, want to talk about it a little, uh, they're almost confusing empathy with knowledge when it comes to a desired outcome. So they might say, well, your mom really cares about you, but some doctor who doesn't even know you just wants your money and is greedy. Well, if I'm having a heart attack, who would I rather have around? Even though my mom really cares and the doctor's never seen me before, I'd rather the doctor. So they're they're assuming that the very people involved in this voting with the state uh, know what to do when it comes to how to make healthcare more abundant, how to make more houses, how to make them more sturdy, how to make my cell phone calls uh, better, how to make my internet more reliable, what books to write. Is that the main thing? They don't understand the harmony between knowledge and incentives that the marketplace has. It's all backwards in the political sphere. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think they really understand action at all. So, I mean, they, they're missing the whole point. And, and we saw that with Richard Wolff here, that he really he starts with production and production is value. Whereas we would recognize that no, production is in pursuit of value. And much of production is actually wrong. And it, it will cause a loss for whoever tried it and whoever made the investment because they didn't actually imagine the, the, where value actually was for consumers. So I, I, I like a quote uh, by Mises where he says something, something to the effect that, that economics is, is the science where you learn that things are the exact opposite of what they look like they are. Right, I don't recall the exact the exact quote, but it's something to that effect. And Marxists have this, just like any eco economic illiterate, they have this tendency to always think think about things the way they look, but that's usually not what made them happen. Right, it's it's a huge problem I think with many when they look at the economy because they say, oh, the economy, uh, that's all this business is producing. Well, I mean, if you if you take a step back and look at it, the businesses producing today are the businesses that were not weeded out yesterday. And what will be the businesses tomorrow? Well, not necessarily the businesses today because they don't have any power. If the businesses today produce things that are not as valuable as new businesses that will enter the market any minute now because the entrepreneurs are trying things, they will get weeded out. So it, it's never, they, they pretend like the economy we're seeing, what we're observing right now is sort of the, the end state, the outcome of a, of a process, but we're in the midst of the process. We have to recognize that. And, and, and then mo most of these sort of, um, th these attempted designs of society, they fail because they assume that we're already at the end. Uh, anything more on uh, capitalism creates an unaccountable minority, uh, his exact words? Well, I mean, I, I don't know any manager who thinks that they are unaccountable because if they do the wrong thing morally or financially, they will be replaced immediately. And I mean, a, mm -hmm. a, a top manager is fired on the spot and has to mm -hmm. leave. And of course, if they did something wrong morally, they probably can't get a new job either because no one wants to hire that weirdo or that that monster right so unaccountable i don't even know what that means in in this context it means they can do whatever they want in the absence of uh, uh of any uh downside as opposed to politicians who, who are always held accountable they never get away with anything they can never invade countries based on lies and murder civilians I, uh, this guy lives in the 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 idea that you know 
libertarians live in like a fantasy world. They live in the biggest false reality. Uh, I, I, I don't, it's hard to ask any questions without, um, you know, trying to uh, straw men them. When it comes to worker cooperatives, um, would those be a legitimate form of organization in a free market society? Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter how people want to organize or not or associate, they're free to do so. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the problem there is that many times worker cooperatives are not very effective in terms of creating value for consumers. So very often they would be not necessarily wasteful, but they would be far from efficient, let's put it that way. Uh, so, mm -hmm. but if they're producing for themselves, which is very, very common among cooperatives, right? That they're just, in a sense, they're sharing a, 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 a very expensive capital intensive machine or something like that, say farmers with a, 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 an elevator or, or whatever. Um, they, th that, that would, would work obviously, because it's just sharing, but cooperatives have this problem that it's really a democracy and it's really no direction and this, all these other concerns that a business does not have because the business has a bottom line. And what contributes to the bottom line? Producing products that their customers value. Interesting. And especially with political democracy, you get people who know either nothing or worse than nothing. They believe a ton of lies. They get a vote and the most uh, you know, knowledgeable person also gets a vote. That that is uh, very important. Um, so uh, walk us through uh, becoming more economically illiterate by showing us the secondary consequences, not just on one group, but on all groups, with the following proposal. Imagine the state cares about books. People have a right to be educated. Therefore, government should coercively fund and monopolize book production and distribution. What could be some of the negative downsides? How would you uh, show someone a way of thinking about that policy so they could really uh, get the economic understanding of how to look at uh, something like this? Well, I mean, if, if that is the policy, then you would get a whole lot of books, probably, at least in the beginning, uh, meaning that there will be an overinvestment in books. The downside and what you don't see is where would this capital be otherwise? So if, if it wouldn't create books, books that entrepreneurs would not necessarily think uh, would be profitable, meaning consumers don't value them enough to pay a high price enough to cover the cost, um, then then the 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 alternative whatever is whatever an entrepreneur might do with those resources, which might be the trees or the paper or the print shop or the, that 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 uh, facility. Um, so anything else could happen. I mean, it's it's. The, the problem we have with this this type of discussion is that we don't really know what would happen otherwise, right? So we have what is seen and 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 the government can uh, over overinvest in books, like in your example, and we get a whole lot of books. And those might not be the books that people actually want, but we get books. Um, but what did we not get? Well, we can't see what we didn't get. So in, in real life, it's really hard to argue against it because you you need theory to tell us that well, Wait a minute, you can make money off of creating much more value for consumers. And because you believe that there is this value that you can produce, you're willing and able to buy resources at a higher price and therefore outbid others. So resources are therefore directed towards where the highest expected value is. 
But that's not it, the case if the government steps in. So with the examples of East Germany and West Germany, North Korea and South Korea, um, you know, Venezuela and Chile, it seems like anytime there's something close to a controlled experiment, Botswana and Zimbabwe is another one, or Ghana and the Ivory Coast. Anytime there's this controlled example, the free market just obliterates the controlled economy every time. And you get people trying to flood into the other zone. It's just so sad and predictable. When it comes to within a country... Is there a correlation between less regulated industries and more regulated industries as far as increasing in quality and decreasing in price over time so the poor can be helped? Um, is there any research you have on that? I haven't seen any exactly on that. I mean, usually they, what they look at is not necessarily quality of goods because that's very hard to measure. But instead, they look at well-being or standard of living for people. And then there's definitely a, a correlation between uh, economic freedom and standard of living, uh, as you would expect, right? But their mm -hmm. their regulations are never straightforward. I mean, there are always uh, limitations and restrictions placed on people in one way or the other. But exactly how they work and how many there are and and what that means that that's really difficult and and, and tedious work to try to figure that out. So. What are incentives and why do they matter? Well, I mean, incentives are basically the psychic profit that you mentioned before. So uh, an incentive to do something just means that it's, uh, it's valuable. It appears beneficial for you to do it. So you can offer, offer people incentives. So I can, I can pay you money uh, to, to eat something that you hate eating. So you wouldn't choose it, but with that money, you would consider it. Right. So I'm, 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 providing an incentive for you to do something that you otherwise wouldn't want to do. And that incentive in the marketplace, of course, is profit, uh, both psychic and monetary. Uh, the government tries to steer the economy very often by offering incentives as, such as subsidies uh, to make, say, farmers produce more cotton or what have you. And then they use regulations and restrictions and all kinds of taxes um, to create disincentives for other types of actions so that they would produce less of it. Uh, of course, this is not uh, in response to consumers. This is in response to what politicians want to see. Um, so it, it's necessarily, and I argue this in, in, in my other book, uh, it's necessarily a deviation from, from how entrepreneurs understand consumer value. Regulations always take us on a different path that is necessarily of lower value according to the whole marketplace. And when it comes to something like student loan debt, uh, I hate using the term forgiveness. It's so predictable to just use their words. When it comes to uh, vi uh, outlawing voluntary contracts uh, unilaterally and stripping people of responsibility, give us an example of how this recent student loan legislation could have secondary uh, negative consequences. Because right now, it seems so cool. The other day I had debt, and now I don't. We should do this more often. Yeah, and it's only $10,000, right? And many people, they borrow a whole lot more. Um, but I mean, if, if you have, for you, the individual, if you have $10,000 in student debt, and it's forgiven, quote unquote, right? Uh, it's good for you. But that money has be, to be taken from somewhere else. And if you have a whole lot more than $10,000, say you have you have three hundred thousand dollars in student debt, and now suddenly you have only two hundred and ninety. Well, that means the interest payment is going to be a little lower, uh, but it's not going to change a whole lot else. 
but with this lower uh, interest rate, you would probably consider doing other things. And I've already seen people comment and, and even articles in media saying how good it is with the student debt forgiveness because now people are considering going on vacation. And I'm not sure that is how you should <laughs> should use those funds. But what what the student debt it only kept you from going on another vacation. I mean, you, what you could do instead is work and pay off even more student debt and become debt free. Um, but I, I think the the worst part of this is is simply that what you're doing is really you're taxing people, many of whom do not have. Uh, student loans and using that money to pay off student loans for those who have it. And of course, you only have student loans if you go to college. So whoever is a, a high school grad, but didn't go further, uh, go into college or a high school dropout, but still have, you have a job while well, you're paying taxes so that you can subsidize the people who went to college and took out loans. And of course, the, um, the implication is, of course, that the more loans you take, the better off you are because the government is going to step in and, and help you from those loans, which means you don't have to economize much anymore. Why would you take that extra job uh, and, and and stay away from, from a little more debt if the government would step in and, and take basically the tax money that you pay when you have this extra job and pay off other people's student debt? So I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's punishing hard work and it's rewarding uh those who are, are lazy and don't don't mind taking on debt, which, which is not not a sound society. And it's is it necessarily the money that's the issue, uh, as opposed to the scarce resources of the concrete used for the building, the teachers, uh, the professors, and their time? Because the modern monetary theorists will just say, "Print more; it doesn't matter." And then when that racks up the debt, print money to rack up. Uh, to, to pay off the debt because now that they're on a total fiat standard, they never have to say, well, the money's got to come from somewhere. Is it important that we say the resources, the man hours, the physical objects have to come from somewhere or is it still that they will have to pay off this money? No, I no, that's right. I mean, the economy is about the real resources. Yeah. It's not about anything else. And, yeah. and I mean, you can use fiat currency to, to manipulate outcomes and distort uh, production in the economy, which of course they do quite a bit. So the whole economy is distorted, uh, but the economy is the resources. Are you familiar with the term credential inflation? I am not. No, that's uh, a new one. So um, that would be where um, we have a new plan. Everyone goes to college and the state pays for it. So a ton of people are now in college when they otherwise wouldn't be. And the teachers aren't going to fail half their class now that they have all these people in there. So they're going to lower the standards. So once they lower the standards for everyone else, everything in the economy becomes worse off. We have worse pilots. We have worse engineers. We have worse parents because they meet at college and they start reproducing earlier because they have more resources at a sooner point in their life. So literally with something like this, it could poison the entire economy. But they just like don't care. They're just real passive about it. Jeff, and they've uh, been doing it for a yeah. long time already. So, yeah. so I mean, I, I don't think they. <clears throat> excuse me. I don't think they see the, the these implications really. Uh, and, and they just want. In this case, what they want to do is buy votes for for the midterm elections. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But, but I mean, they 
they, they want to uh, a quick fix and long-term consequences, they don't care. And that's what politics is because politics looks to how can I make people happy and or at least look like I'm doing something, something substantial in their favor before the next election so I get uh, reelected. It's the market that is long-term. Yes, yes. The book is How to Think About an Economy. A primer link is in the description below. Dr. Bieland, Jeff, time for one more question. Sure, let's go. Here is Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all other preceding generations together. Subjugation of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing the whole continents for cultivation, canalization of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground. What earlier century had even a, a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor? Where is the fallacy, if any, in that thinking? Um, I don't think there is one. I mean, not that I heard. Uh, and, and I mean, Marx was a perceptive guy. I've used Marx, Marx myself in, in my work. Uh, yeah. and, but the problem is that he always wanted to shoehorn it into being exploitation so that it fit his political system. Uh, many of the observations were actually accurate. And I mean, no one would argue that, that whatever goes on in the marketplace is always optimal and, and perfect. And it's never. Uh, it's never the case. But it's, it's getting better and it's, it's providing more and more people with uh, the means to a, a good life and a higher standard of living. And we're seeing that and we've been seeing that for a few hundred years and we're in the midst of the process. The future looks really bright unless people like Richard Wolff get to design their economic system. Dr. Billin, thank you so much for your time. The book is How to Think About the Economy, a primer. Take care, Dr. Billin. Thank you.